Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is <laughs> my hair look okay? It's my name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Erica Turgeson is the senior advisor for the National Rifle Association's Institute for Legislative Action. She is also the director of hunting policy for the NRA. But at her core, at her roots, she's a ranch girl from Colorado. She owns a ranch in Virginia now. And I really wanted to have her on because she's got a strong voice as a female in the hunting space and works for a very controversial organization, the NRA. And so I wanted to hear from her what the NRA is doing for hunting and some of her positions related to know why we are where we are today from a hunting perspective so enjoy you know the whole thing about drinking coffee in the afternoon i can't do it number one i just i'm a one cup in the morning two cups in the morning kind of guy but i don't get the idea of someone saying i drink coffee in the afternoon and it keeps me up i just i don't get it i have to end at 4 p.m if i don't if i go beyond four then i can't sleep at night it's ridiculous. Really? I love coffee. I love to have afternoon coffee. So I have to get it in right before four. But then I'm good. 
Yeah. Here's a test of question of whether or not the podcast continues after this question. <laughs> uh oh. Um, what kind of coffee do you get at Starbucks? Oh, I'm not a huge Starbucks person, but um, I probably will be fired by you right now because I do love lattes. I'll just admit it. I'm a caramel macchiato guy. <laughs> okay. Now, All my in cameraman, company then. <laughs> that's right. My cameraman is like, as we call him, he's a basic white girl in that he takes a venti mochaccino with almond milk with extra whip kind of deal oh wow i'm not um i'm no frills just a latte with whole milk i don't care that's all i need caffeinated no flavor just plain jane easy there we go there we go well erica uh let me see if i can get your last name right erica turgeston correct turgeston 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 well done turgeston no, I actually said Stin, so that was a little wrong. Mm. Turgeson. Uh, welcome to the Blood Origins podcast. Thank you very much for having me. We're always interested in having very, uh, you know, strong conversations, strong discussions with people, especially with uh, strong women in our industry, and you're certainly one of them. So uh, for those who may not know who you are, do you want to go and in introduce yourself? Sure. My name, again, is Erica Turgeson. I am a senior advisor to the National Rifle Association. I work specifically for the Institute of Legislative Action. That's kind of the political wing of NRA. And I've also been the director of hunting policy there for quite some time as well. So I also handle hunting in addition to numerous other jack of all trades type work. So maybe the first poke that I will ask is why is the NRA interested in hunting? That is a great question. Um, actually, it's in NRA's mission statement. We were founded in 1871. And the NRA, a lot of people don't know this, but we came up with um, hunter education in 1947. We were the first ones to come up with hunter education. So we actually have a lot to do uh, with hunting. Why, why do you think NRA started there? Why did they, was it to allow people to get more familiar with firearms was it was it tied to the hunting side of things the ethics side of things from an animal's perspective what was it i think it was um, a marksmanship ethics um, range etiquette all of those things i mean originally the nra was really founded to help improve marksmanship which was sorely lacking so it's the education and training piece safe handling of firearms um and then, as, as you know, with marksmanship also comes ethical kill, which is very important, too, and lethal kill. Uh, Erica, are you a hunter? Yes, I am. We're going to get one-word answers from you today on the podcast. <laughs> I am Come used on, girl. To, I apologize. Jeez, I am I'm not, this is not, listen to okay. me, listen, let me, let me stop you. This is not a TV response this is not a radio interview in which you're getting grilled about coming from the NRA and putting a political position forward. Do you understand? Yes, I do. Okay. Let me start again then. Erica, are you a hunter? Yes, I am a hunter. I grew up on ranch in Colorado. Um, and that's where I learned to shoot and hunt with my father, like a lot of ranch children. Um, and now I live in Virginia. I have a farm here. And one of my favorite things to do when I have time is to actually hunt on my own farm. Have you taken anything on your farm yet? I have, and I actually took the first buck this year off of my farm. So he was a little buck, 
but I'm still um, was still very excited about that. And uh, it's actually a great place because I have a creek that runs through my property and my neighbors on both sides don't allow hunting. So um, this is a well sought out hunting space, I guess. Um, so I allow others to come and hunt too, because uh, we have a pretty, pretty bountiful harvest here, which is great because deer are so overpopulated um, in this part of the state. Is there a, um, are you, do you engage with any like non-hunters in your circle? Obviously you engage in the NRA type mm -hmm. circle, lots of people with guns and stuff like that, but do you engage with non-hunters at all? I would say less so. So that doesn't happen very often in my circle of folks, as, as you can imagine with the NRA. Um, although I will tell you this, this is kind of interesting. We do get um, pushback and concern from typical Second Amendment supporters who don't like the fact that we are so supportive of hunting, um, which I think is very interesting, especially because we get involved in wolf for example, um, and the whole wolf delisting issue and the whole grizzly bear delisting issue. That's one of the main things we do is we litigate all of those cases. Um, and we work closely with Safari Club International on that. And we do get members that do not like that. Um, and since I can just keep talking, I will tell you coming from a ranch, I've never understood the, the kind of love for predators that is out there that that isn't there for you know deer or bambi um because in my world and my way of seeing things i i look at deer and i think okay well they're you know they're not predators um they're just trying to live their lives i look at a grizzly bear and a wolf and i know what they do and that's what they're born to do but um at the same time, I don't understand why people have so much more affection for them than they do for whitetail, for example. Have you read a book called David Guaman's Monster of God? I have not. So David Guaman's Monster of God is about alpha predators in the landscape. And it's about how humans are intimately connected with alpha predators and how there is this sort of ancestral DNA tied to a connectiveness of inspiration of you can almost see yourself in that individual predator because we're at the same level at the top tier of the trophic pyramid, essentially. But then there's also the element of competition, i.e., I, back in the day, we were all back in the day, were, you know, mm -hmm. maybe not hunters, maybe more scavengers than hunters, but we were in competition for a prey base with these big alpha predators. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sort of dichotomy, and, and, and it really speaks to the divisiveness when dealing with predators, and that you have one side of the argument where you say people see things in them they, uh, they they see the cuteness they see the majesticness of it uh and then you have someone that's completely on the opposite end of it which is someone who like sees it as competition sees it as competition to the livelihood and that is true and i think it's true on both sides of the of the, of the coin and i think it's interesting. Like I just finished a podcast. It'll go out next week. I don't know when this podcast will drop. So um, we would have dropped a podcast with one of the first ranchers out of Colorado oh. that had their cows taken yes. by wolves. 
Yes, I just read that whole article um, in the Rocky Mountain News from Walden. Mm -hmm. From Walden, exactly. Yes. His name is Dave Gittleson. Mm -hmm. And he's got a ranch. And, um, you know, when, I, when you listen to that podcast, Dave wants to do the right thing. Yeah. And let me, you know, let, you talked about seeing predators differently or people seeing predators differently than deer. But do you want, I don't, I, you know, we're not speaking for the NRA here, speaking Erica. Mm -hmm. Does Erica want wolves and grizzlies exterminated off the landscape? No, no, I don't. Um, and that's one thing that was mentioned in that article that the rancher um, talked about is that he doesn't want them exterminated either. But we do need to have, we can't pretend like we're in the same country that we were in the 1860s, right? This country has changed a lot and we have a lot of urban centers. We have a lot of growth outside into the countryside. So to think that the wolf is just going to stay in those areas um, and that the wolf, for example, the, the initiative in Colorado said that the wolves had to be introduced west of the Continental Divide. Well, do you think that the wolves care where the Continental Divide is? Absolutely right. not. And those are the ridiculous things that, you know, we as humans come up with that are just totally unmanageable. So if, mm -hmm. if you want it to work, you have to come up with a way that ranchers can still be able to manage uh, their livestock and protect their livestock. Um, otherwise, it's it's not going to work. Yeah, it's funny that the, that you heard ex exactly what you said about what you read in the Rocky Mountain Journal. Yeah, was this guy's sentiment was he doesn't want to, he doesn't want extermination, but he wants help. Mm -hmm. He wants help because the wolves are not afraid. They're not afraid of him. They're not afraid of being around humans, of their, you know, their, their dwellings, their houses. They're in the cows. And he's like, what, what am I going to do here? And Robbie, I mean, here's the thing, and this is so important to me as a hunter and a ranch girl, is that, you know, you have to understand livestock or even wildlife that live in an environment with wolves, with other predators like that, are going to be much more stressed. And you can't put a price tag and you can't necessarily quantify, you know, the the livestock or the wildlife that aren't born as a result of that, the weight that they don't put on, the ones that are diseased because they're stressed all the time. I mean, those are all things that have to be considered in all of this. And a lot of time it isn't. It's just, oh, well, you know, we had a wolf that killed your cow and we'll give you money for it. And that's it. And then um, I saw they had two of their dogs taken too by wolves, mm -hmm. um, and that's that's real, uh, and that will not fly on the on the eastern slope of Colorado. Um, the Front Range is so heavily populated now; um, people are not going to be okay with that. So they really need to be serious about how they're going to manage these wolves. No, you're absolutely right. It's just. It's just one of those big contentious issues that will never go away. And as Cody mentioned on a podcast with Randy Newberg, could you imagine the amount of habitat that could have been bought, that could have been restored mm. with all of the money that has been used litigating wolves? I know. It's sad and it's ridiculous. And, and you know, maybe it is a good thing because maybe it will help Americans to understand what Africa is going through um 
because when I see people who don't understand, you know, why you hunt lions in Africa or elephants, they really don't understand that a, that an elephant may destroy the entire village's livelihood, you know, in a night. I mean, you know this better mm -hmm. than I do. You're from Africa, but um, they don't understand what it would be like to have a lion kill your son or all your livestock. I mean, these are serious things that Americans can't even fathom. Um, so I think it's important that maybe it'll give people a little bit more perspective. Have you been to South Africa or Africa? I have been to Africa. I've not been to South Africa. Um, Where in Africa? I will be. I will be embarrassed to tell you this, but I've been to Kenya, that doesn't allow hunting. <laughs> oh, so. look! Kenya is an amazing country, and you saw some great wildlife whilst you were there. I did in the parks, as you know, because outside of the parks, there isn't a lot of wildlife. And um, it's kind of disgusting to me the way that the, I'm sorry, I hear my dog barking outside. That's my great Pyrenees um, <laughs> guarding me Good right protection. now. She's protecting me. Yeah. Um, but anyway, um, I get really frustrated when I hear about how great Kenya is because they don't allow hunting. And then when you actually look at the numbers, we all know what's going on there and all the corruption that's going on there, um, which is pretty disgusting at the end of the day. Yeah, look, corruption is going to happen everywhere in Africa. It's just part of the system, unfortunately. But you're right. The, you know, when you take hunting away in an African system, what you're doing is you're transferring a value away from wildlife mm -hmm. to something else, an avocado farm, a cattle farm some sort of agriculture, ecotourism certainly is in that, in that basket. And in certain cases, like the national parks in Kenya, ecotourism works very, very well mm -hmm. uh, to proliferate wildlife and to sustain wildlife in those areas. But you can't but do ecotourism everywhere, as we all know. That's right. It's not possible. That's right. No, that's absolutely right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. I will say um, the amazing thing about Africa is I went to the Masamara, and that is truly incredible. And um, you have to appreciate it coming from America, because if we were in charge of that, we probably would have developed it by now or farmed it. Um, so it is very cool that it's still there and that you could still see it. Um, but again, I think it's, it's so important to look at Africa through an African lens. It's really very difficult for most Americans, unless you've been there and seen it. And then even if you have, a lot of people have only gone to the parks on photographic safaris. And that also doesn't give you a good picture of what Africa actually is. Um, I was there kind of on a partial missionary trip. And so I saw a lot of the less desirable parts of mm -hmm. Africa. And you can really understand why um, why people behave the way that they do there. I mean, it's not a developed um, continent. It's, you know, the, the basic needs are not met for a lot of people there. You know, they're hauling their water every day. I mean, they're things that we just take for granted. So until you can really understand that, I, I really hate how people judge um, the Africans and their wildlife management. Well, isn't it, isn't it because of us? Isn't it because of hunters that we haven't done a good enough job of describing the benefits and the consequences that come from hunting, i.e. the 
the putting in of boreholes, the creation of schools, the creation of uh, clinics, health clinics, all because of the revenue of hunting. Because really, you never see it, right? All you see it is twenty second clip at the end of some guy's hunting show. Mm -hmm. No, you're you're absolutely right. We've done a terrible job, and I think the hunting community in general. The other thing that we've done mm -hmm. is we're really good at talking to each other, but not talking to non hunters. Um, and that's something that uh, we at NRA are trying to work on. We're trying to work on, I'm sure you've heard, I've heard you mention on your podcast before, the research that's out there where it's about 80 to 86% of Americans support hunting, even if they right. don't hunt. Um, and it's important that we continue to have the support of the American people. And every day, the animal rights contingency is kind of whittling that away little by little. And if we don't start to get our story out there, then we're going to be in big trouble. And I mean, Africa is there's what, four, four percent um, of Americans actually support elephant hunting, for example. So um, and we know why. I mean, look at the media. Well, there's lots of hunters that don't support elephant hunting. Yes. Yeah. Very true. Very true. So, um, yeah, we we need to do a better job of telling our story and all the things that we do. But I think it's very challenging in this type of kind of hyper um, cell phone electronic environment that we live in these days. Um, and I know you kind of talk about this a lot, but, you know, we see because we get outside all the time. You know, we see this big, wonderful world around us. And I do worry about the future generations because they have a hard time putting down the phone and kind of seeing what's out there. You alluded to a little bit in your email what I and I and I've said this a lot in the past, like where do we think the disconnect is? Like where do we see the biggest disconnect being? And I, you, you said in your email, and I echo it in that it's this almost sanitization of what death represents. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I feel like as a people, we are, you know, people rush to the doctor. They have all these scans. We are terrified of death, which trust me, I, I get it. But there's not the acceptance of death, I feel like maybe we used to have. Um, and with that comes the fact that you don't want something to die for you to eat it, right? And mm -hmm. one of the many things that your podcasts have have um, noted is that there are consequences to everything we eat, whether it's a vegetable, whether it's you know um, a dough, whatever it may be, there are consequences. And in order for life, to be life, there also has to be death. But we have, like you said, sanitized it so much. You go to the grocery store, you have no idea what cut of beef that is, or you know what part of the cow it came from. If you even know that it's from a cow, um, you know you turn on your tap and there's water. You don't even think about where your water comes from. Um, and, and so until I, I don't know, I think it probably starts with the education system until we get back to understanding those things, I don't know how we correct the course. No, you're absolutely right. I think that uh, I, I always want to make sure that when we talk about, you know, meat in a store, 
there are very good regenerative ranches like you were raised on in Colorado and everywhere in the United States as well as around the world that do a yeoman's job in terms of raising cattle and sheep and goats and whatever type of uh, agriculture that is, there is that you do know exactly where the meat came from. You do know who fed, you know, raised the animal. Uh, so we can't, you know, make sure we're not pigeonholing them into the same category as, the, you know, the right. piece of polystyrene meat that you pick up at a grocery store. Um, but no, I think, yeah, it's, I just don't know how, because you've got the juxtaposition of video games that you can kill as much okay. as you want on. but I, And maybe that even adds to the to the burden, which is, you're almost sanitized in that regard because it's fake. Right. Not real. Right. There's no consequence to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the consequence of death. And, you know, Robbie, the other thing that I think, and well, we know this has happened, is that as we have passed laws that have made more and more environmental restrictions, and I'm not not necessarily saying that is a bad thing. In many cases, it's a good thing. But we have shifted a lot of our problems abroad, right? So there's a lot of things, the the production of certain things, like we don't tan cattle hides in the United States anymore um, because it was environmentally very toxic, but someone does. And it's not us. When we could do it here and we could do it in the most environmentally and, um, you know, in terms of labor protections, too, we can do it well here in the United States. But instead, we kind of prefer to shift all of that nastiness to other developing countries and let them deal with it so that we can only kind of deal with the nice things. Um, and that's another huge problem. You still have a ranch in Colorado? Um, no, my parents have. No, my parents sold it. So. No, they encouraged me to do something else with my life because when you are relying on mother nature <laughs> for your bounty, it can be um, very interesting at times. And, and you know, you talk a lot about sustainable ranching and there are always improvements that everyone can make. And I'm not saying all ranchers are good people because they're not, but I don't know very many rich ranchers and you work 365 days a year. Um, mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a tough job. Um, and it's, but it is also why I am who I am. And I saw death and I saw, you know, birth and um, mother nature as a very young child. And I, I'm so thankful that I did because I feel so connected and grounded as a result of that. And I just wish that more people could have that type of experience. So let's talk a little bit about, I know I've tried to avoid NRA for as long as I can. <laughs> um, so let's talk a little bit about NRA. And let's talk specifically to what NRA does in the hunting world. Mm -hmm. Okay. You talked a little bit about Hunter. You started Hunter Education back in 1947. Uh, you've also talked, a little, you've already said that NRA is interested in getting in the litigation fight when it comes to these, you know, we, we species are. of. Mm -hmm. We are. are in the litigation fight. Yeah. Um, and wolves with gr and grizzly bears. Yes, correct. And several other lawsuits. For example, um, the Center for Biological Diversity 
recently sued the Fish and Wildlife Service for the 2.2 million acres that they opened um, to hunting and fishing on refuges. So we actually just filed today to intervene uh, in that case. And we filed with- That was happening behind closed doors, right? Yes, they're in settlement discussions right now. So the other thing that we're doing, and we're working with several um, hook and bullet groups on this, is we're asking Interior to please not settle that case. Because as you know, in many cases they sue and then they go behind closed doors and they have a great settlement and no one else gets to participate in that. So there's there's really not a lot to settle here, right? It's the, the refuges are there and they expanded the areas in which you can hunt and you can fish. And what would the compromise be there? There really isn't much of a compromise. They might try to say they need to put it through some environmental review or Endangered Species Act review. Um, but all of that would be ridiculous because they, the Fish and Wildlife Service already knows what is going on in those refuges and what would be appropriate, hence why they opened the areas, um, mm -hmm. as we know. Um, NRA gets involved in, we have on the federal level, we have a federal team of lobbyists. And then on the state levels, we have state and local. Um, we also have a research division that does legal research. Um, we get involved in the, uh, like the right to hunt and fish constitutional amendments. Uh, we've been pushing a lot of those. Actually, yesterday was a great day for those of you in the state of Virginia because we passed, um, we finally lifted the ban on Sunday hunting on public lands That's right. in Virginia. Um, and that goes to the governor for signature. So we've sent out notice for everybody to uh, reach out to the governor and hopefully he will sign that bill and that will be a huge victory. So Sunday hunting is still a big issue. Um, little by little, we're winning that issue. On the federal level, uh, you guys already know, but it's everywhere from Cecil the Lion to trophy imports um, to different wildlife management bills that are out there, all of those types of things. And in the states, um, it just depends at the hodgepodge, but it's all the issues in the states that they deal with on hunting. And the NRA is involved in almost all of them. We try to stay away from any um, biological management. So we believe the, the wildlife biologists know what they're doing. We're not going to tell them how to set their limits or tags or that type of thing. But we also try to keep hunting affordable. So when there are big increases um, for tags or fees or licenses, we generally do not support those because we're having fewer and fewer hunters and it needs to be more affordable and more accessible, not less. Well, the latest bit of data suggests that we have the highest amount of hunters we've ever had, not ever had, but back to the, the highest amount we've had uh, in 20 to 30 years, Erica. Well, I, I certainly hope so. I think a lot of that was because of COVID and, and we'll see if it continues. And I, I hope that it does. I mean, that has been the blessing of COVID is more people got outside. And so maybe as you're talking about reconnecting to nature, you know, this has been a great opportunity for people to do that. In your experience, how long have you been with the NRA? Uh, I've been there a little over, I think, four years now. But this is my my second tour of duty, as we say. Um, with the NRA, I was a federal lobbyist prior to that and on and off the hill. Okay. In your experience, 
you've been through legislative season multiple times, right? Yes. And when I say legislative season, I mean January 1 through May kind of deal is the typical legislative season in, across the states. Would that be a fair assessment? Uh, generally speaking, it depends on the, every state. A lot of them are done by uh, May. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This year, there has been, and I don't know if it's because we're paying more attention. I want to say it's because we seem to be winning, but there seems to be a lot of bills that are pro hunting being confirmed. Mm -hmm. Like you just mentioned, Virginia, Sunday hunting, um, Georgia is moving some bills through the, the state right now for no net, net loss of hunting ground mm -hmm. that passed the, the, the house 162 to zero. Um, and then there's a bunch of anti-hunting pieces of legislation that are being struck. Mm -hmm. Colorado, mm -hmm. California, big voice against yes. the, the black bear petition. Uh, Washington State, we're through the, 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 the first step of the process. We're going into the second step of the process for Washington spring bear season coming back. New Hampshire, the dog system there, 18 to 2 voted down and so forth and so forth. Arizona's about, a, uh, the commission's about to vote on the hunt guidelines in April, and we believe that's going to go very favorably. Mm -hmm. It's, I don't want to jinx ourselves and touch wood, but we've stacked a bunch of plus ones in our column this year. Have you ever seen a year that we've stacked this many plus ones in the column? I, I have not. It, it's been an amazing year. It really has. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure why, <laughs> but I'll take it. I do think that um, a lot of the, a lot of our organizations are working better together than we ever had before. And I also think that's kind of a, um, a result of COVID. So I, I think it kind of reset everybody's priorities. And rather than fighting amongst each other, which is just ridiculous, we've been actually working together um, and more closely than we ever have before. So I think that's helped. Well, isn't that the point, right? It is the point. That we all are, we all are rowing towards the horizon together. Yes. And yeah, you know, you're, you all are chasing donors. You're all chasing donations. You're all, that, that's, that is the game. Yes. But it shouldn't stop you from working together. Not at all. And every organization has a different, different niche kind of just like, you know, every person cares more about some issues than rather than others. So some would prefer to give to other groups. Some would prefer to give to us. Some of them hate us. That's okay. We could still all come together and talk about hunting and work on it together. No, absolutely right. What is, um, what's the future hunting season look like for Erica this year? Uh, well, that's a great. Have you got turkeys on your property? Uh, I do, but not. Um, I they pass through, but it's not a great spot. I actually have um, a place that's about a mile from me that I need to go talk to the landowner because it is a turkey haven. So, nice. so we we shall see. But no, they're just not. And my Great Pyrenees doesn't help out <laughs> with mm -hmm. the turkeys. <laughs> Um, so you need to bake like a big pie or something and walk it up the road yeah. and uh, say, hey, can I get some yes. 
some hunting rights. Yes, exactly. Um, Old school. I do have lots of coyotes here too, so that's that's not helpful. I would really, really, really love to shoot a coyote, but as you know, they're they're very difficult. So. That's for sure. Anything on the horizon from a hunting policy perspective, since you're the director of hunting policy for NRA, that you know you, that you're working on right now. Um, we continue that you to may work. allow to talk about. Yeah, sure. Um, we are. We've got a lot of irons in the fire with litigation. As I said, we're going to continue with the wolf litigation, even though we recently lost on that. Um, grizzly bears are going to continue to be a big issue for us as well. Um, and then to the wolf, to the wolf issue, let me, let me pose this question because Cody yeah. and Randy Newberg talked about it, which is a very fascinating turn of events for the wolf reintroduction mm-hmm. in the state of Colorado. They are now listed as an endangered species right. relisted Yes, in the state of Colorado. And so they would have to apply for a special permit for reintroduction now because they're federally protected. Yeah. They are federally protected. Mm -hmm. And so now here's the irony and Cody pointed it out. Will the state of Colorado vote for state management of wolves? It's a great question. They already have in one sense, but that was before they were federally protected. Um, it does open up additional litigation hooks. <laughs> but, That's true. But um, it is an interesting... And it also helps landowners. That's what Dave Gittleson said. Dave yes. Gittleson said, now with the relisting, I have weapons. Yes. Not technically weapons, but I have now the federal government that will now help me if they can come in and take care of the problem. Yes. Yeah. It will be very interesting to see what happens. It's a very interesting, um, the wolf, you know, uh, uh, let me, let me finish with this because the wolf constantly gets, um, conversation. Do you think that the wolf is, like you said, we're going to continue to litigate wolves, but do you think the wolf is going to last? Like, do you, I, we think it's on its dying legs, like they're moving off of it. It's, It's a done deal. Like they've, they've, they've raided the piggy bank. They've gotten as much money as they possibly can out of the wolf. And now they're on to something else, like black bears seems to be very popular, or mountain lions right. seems to be getting gaining, gaining, gaining mm-hmm. popularity. Right. Uh, I don't because I still think it. I think wolves will continue to be their cash cow. I really do. And the case law on wolves is so bad for us because it was kind of the first real case that was litigated a lot. Um, so the case law is so terrible for us that it will probably continue to be litigated for a very long time. Um, and as long as it is, they'll keep raising money off of it. I don't think we raise any money off of it, um, but we do it because we believe it's the right thing to do. And we believe that the wolf is recovered and the state should be managing them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Erica, um, we like to tend to keep these things short, sharp, and to the point, as you know. Uh, after listening to our podcast, by the way, thank you for, um, I, I, you know, what I want to thank you for is thank you for having an assumption (laughs) on what this was and emailing me saying, wow, I was wrong. I was wrong. And I love the guests that you have on. Um, so I will be listening in the future. You have an awesome podcast and thanks for letting me be on. 
we are talking about awesome podcasts. The last guest that I'll talk about is a guy that I actually podcasted with today. I think we're going to drop his podcast will be out by the time this one drops too. Um, and he is a forestry engineer in a national park in Spain. Yes. In which the national parks have been banned from hunting back in 19, in December 2020. And the government told the hunting outfits this year, this February, that they wanted the hunting outfits to come in, even though they told them you cannot hunt, it's banned. Now the government has come in and told them, no, you actually need, we need you to kill 5,000 animals and it has to happen in the season, which is 28 days. The hunting outfits was like, mm, not going to happen mm -hmm. and you're not paying us. So how are we supposed to do it? And we can't, we can't charge for it. So we're not going to do it. And so they didn't do it. They didn't kill a single animal. Wow. And the population is still skyrocketing and the vegetation is being hammered left, right and center. Mm -hmm. And it's a, it's, it's sad, but it's also a beautiful proof yes. of when we say, if you ban hunting, we get it. You're stopping the killing of wildlife in your minds. But here's the situation where you're actually going to kill probably in September when this comes back around, it's going to be more like 7,000 animals. And that's brutal. And it's not going to be pleasant because it's really going to be like an exercise in culling, mm -hmm. an exercise in removing biomass off the landscape. You know, Robbie, we had that here um, in Rocky Mountain National Park. They wanted to use sharpshooters um, for wolves. And that's when we passed legislation saying, no, you can use volunteer hunters instead. Because I think the park, and don't quote me on this, but the park had like five to seven million that they were going to spend on sharpshooters when they could make money off of it. Um, Makes sense. I mean, what you just said opens up a whole can of worms. You've got the wild horse and burrow issue in the West here, which is just unbelievable. And and I mean, it's it's unbelievable. What are we going to do with that? There is no solution to it because um, the people in Washington, D.C., won't allow there to be really they keep throwing money at the problem but um you know they have fertility controls where they're trying to give a mayor a shot so that for one year she won't have a full um but then you have to somehow find that mayor out in the wild again and give it a shot annually um and that's not easy um they don't want to geld any of the stallions which is also ridiculous. So instead, the only thing they can agree on is to remove them from the land and then pay ranchers to have them until they die, basically. I mean, it's, um, I think they say each horse costs $50,000 of taxpayer money over its lifetime because we can't agree to properly manage them the way that we would manage our wildlife. And it, it brings up another topic where, um, and that's, a very extreme group of people on the wild horse and burrow end of things. But, you know, they, when I was on the Hill, they would come in and tell us that they would rather have them starve than to have them slaughtered. Um, which if you know anything about starvation, it's a much more painful death <laughs> than, mm -hmm. than, you know, the, the other route. Um, so anyway, it's, um, it's, it's really incredible. Yeah, it's the you what this rancher in Colorado talked about was 
watching, not watching because he didn't see it, but witnessing the carnage after a wolf kill on a cow, right? In the yes. way that it essentially is eaten, very brutal, very violent. Um, and those same people that, you know, are big fans of wolves. And look, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I'm not a big fan of wolf. I'm a big fan of wolf and I want to see them on landscape and I want to hear them howl and I want to interact with them. I absolutely do. But the same people would say to me as a hunter that I'm unethical. Right. When it comes to how I, you know, because I kill. And I'm like, no, that, that's the whole point of all the technology that I bring into the field is that, and all the practice that I go through and all the time that I put in is because I want to be as, as clean of a kill as I possibly can, as humane as I possibly can be, because that's who we are. Absolutely. And I, I mean, it sounds weird, but I think that those animals, those wildlife that we harvest have a much better life than the ones that die of natural causes, right? That is just basically the facts. Um, not in every case, but in most cases, you know, as you always say, Mother Nature's not a nice lady. Um, and the way that those, the, that wildlife is going to die is not going to be pleasant. 100%. 100%. Erica, thank you so much. You. Um, it's dinner time for me and it's dinner time for you, I think. So, and dinner time probably for your great Pyrenees outside. Yes. Apologies for that. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery. Waypoint TV.